Hi, I'm Rayburn Johnson. And I'm Steve Sensenick. And this is Beyond the Box. Here's your invitation to explore life outside the box of institutional religion. This is a place where there are no walls to restrict our search for truth as we embrace the ambiguity of defining our life in Christ. So unbuckle your seatbelt, recline your chair, throw caution to the wind, and get ready for the ride that is Beyond the the Box. Welcome back to Beyond the Box, everyone. It is great to be with you today. Thank you so much for taking the time to tune in, whether you're listening to us in your earbuds on the treadmill or in your car on the way to work or at your at your desk on your computer. Just thank you so much for taking the time not only to listen, but to be part of this community. Really appreciate you guys, and I know I speak for Steve when I say we really consider you guys a part of our community, and we're just so thankful for your fellowship, for your friendship, and for the great dialogue that we get to have, not only as a result of these podcasts, but also as a result of the community that we've developed both on Facebook and on the website, and uh, it's just a great, great place to share this journey that we're walking on in Christ. You guys are amazing. Today, I am super, super stoked, super psyched, I don't know how many ways to say it, to bring to you a podcast with Phyllis Tickle. Phyllis Tickle is an amazing woman. I I just can't throw enough superlatives out there. I can't throw enough adjectives out there. This is one of the most charming ladies I've ever heard speak in my life. Um, Her books are so impactful and have been so helpful to me. I really think you're going to enjoy this conversation. Phyllis is actually the founding editor of the Religion Department of Publishers Weekly, which is the international journal of the book industry. Um, She is frequently quoted. She's frequently lectured. She is a very sought-after speaker, and I just consider it a privilege to have her here on the podcast. And the great thing about Phyllis Tickle is while many would consider her an authority on religion, she is actually deconstructing the whole idea of what it even means to be an authority. Um, you guys are going to really enjoy this podcast. So let me get out of the way, let that roller coaster roll on by, and enjoy this conversation with Phyllis Tickle. Well, I am more than excited to be joined by the fabulous Phyllis Tickle today. <laughs> Phyllis, thank you so, so much for being on the podcast. Well, thank you for inviting me. But the fabulous, you know, leaves a little bit tired. <laughs> <laughs> well, I got to say, I've read a lot of different descriptions of you because you wear many hats and you get around. Uh, yeah, but <laughs> um, my favorite by far is that you're a Southern Belle. I love that. I don't know where that came from. It just suddenly appeared and I went, whoop. Uh, you know, but why not? I mean, I would take that one in a heartbeat. I just never thought I'd grow up to become one. <laughs> <laughs> well, when I do the bumpers for the epi- this episode, I'll throw in a little more formal introduction, but I got to say, that's by far my favorite one, especially... Oh, 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 well, well, stick with the Southern Belle. I think that's just fine. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, uh, I got so excited because I've I've been reading your material for several years and um, saw you at the Wild Goose and met you at the Wild yeah. Goose last year in the midst of a bunch of other people. You were you were flooded with uh, people wanting to talk to you. Um, 
But I, I found out such an interesting fact about you. I had no idea you were born in Johnson City. Johnson City, Tennessee. That's right. Which is why the Southern Belle thing is funny. Because, uh, as you know, um, East Tennessee was never Southern in any way. And Johnson City is just as close up there as you can get before you hit North Carolina and Kentucky and, and West Virginia. Um, and it was never Southern. Um, even fought Yankee in the war, split off from... Uh, the state of Tennessee in order to stick with the Union. So it's kind of delicious to think that um, almost 60 years of living down in Memphis, which really is the Delta, has, you know, uh, sort of uh, rubbed off in a way. (laughs) (laughs) My folks would be really proud. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I got to say, I actually grew up just right outside of, do you know where Boone, North Carolina is at? Of course I know where Boone, North Carolina is. Yeah, one of the best schools going, Appalachian State, come on. Oh, come on. Now now you really got me excited, Phyllis. Yes, I am a huge Mountaineer fan. I uh, I actually grew up right outside of Boone, so my wife and I, when we began to date, all of our dates were in Johnson City, so I just thought that was so oh, fun. Oh, <laughs> for heaven's sake. Off air, we'll have to swap some sites. <laughs> oh, definitely. That sounds great with me. That sounds great with me. Sam and I grew up in Johnson City uh, together, met in the church nursery. He's 50 weeks older than I to the day, and I was two weeks <laughs> old, and he was a year when we met. <laughs> that is so cool. Well, that I tell is so you, it is, a, it is a small, small world. World. It is indeed. It is it indeed. It is a small, small world. And I want to tell you, you know, I've had so many people on the podcast and one of my one of my pet peeves, and maybe you can pass this along to all of our uh, emergent buddies, but one of my pet peeves is when uh, they're wanting to kind of dismiss traditional thinking or that kind of thing, and they use a Southern voice to do it. And I thought to myself, <laughs> I am so tickled to have someone on the podcast that can go intellectually toe-to-toe with anyone I know who speaks with a Southern accent. That's that right. just blesses my heart. <laughs> There's a lot to be said for that accent, may I say. It has enormous uses, I've discovered. Yes. When I was, I worked for 12 years, as you know, in New York, out of New York, and, and I, I learned very early early that the minute you landed in LaGuardia, you said, honey, I need a taxi cab. And you just got, you would not believe they lined up panting to carry. It was so funny. I, so I really honed my Southern accent. <laughs> well, I, you know, I tried for a few years to get rid of mine and then I just gave up and said, what the heck? I am who I am. I am what this I is am. Who That's I am. right. You know, by, like Paul said, by the grace of God, I am who That's I am. What I am, yes. And may, he may have made a mistake, but still I'm here, yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, i tell you what, your books have been so influential for me. Um, right. your, your first book, The Great Emergence, and the second yeah. one, Emergence Christianity, I've told people that in many ways, I feel like uh, you wrote my biography. Excellent. <laughs> because that's so good to hear. In any, it, in any dialect, in any accent, that's great to hear. I, I'm so glad. Thank you. Thank you. Well, well, I tell you, in so many ways, I just, I better understood my story yeah. after reading this book because there's so, there's so many parts that seemed really um, just disjointed in my life that I thought, how did I get here from where I was? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. in reading your book, it almost felt like you were writing a history tailor made for me. Yeah. Um, I, I just so appreciate that. I'm so excited about this book, Emergence Christianity, what it is, where it's going, and why it matters. Yeah. Yeah. In your two books, um, one of the big themes that you really bring out that I've just found fascinating is this idea of 500-year yeah. shifts. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, uh, you know, and uh, uh, let me say that, um, and, and you're too young to remember, but 
for a while, the whole business of historic cycles was very important. And the middle part of the last century, it got to be downright silly. People were cycling every two years and three years and 18 months and that kind of thing. And it lost a certain amount of academic credibility and, and professional historians began to talk about historic determinism and, and that kind of thing, and to be skittish about cycles. And so for that reason, um, uh, the, the academic world kind of walked away from them for a while, and it's just now uh, beginning to come back, and um, thanks to systems theory and the mathematics of systems theory, um, to, uh, to realize that we may have thrown out the baby with the bathwater, all of which is to say that the church and independent scholars have been aware for the last hundred years um, that we were cycling again and, and of the pattern, um, but they just um, they weren't heard, and it's just now beginning to be heard again. The, what, what we got to face historically, and C.S. Lewis, um, whom I love to quote anyway, uh, C.S. Lewis was the first to say, you know, it's, it's a fool who thinks that history has to repeat itself, but it's a fool who doesn't look at what has happened uh, and, mm. and use it. And he's absolutely right. Um, every 500 years, for some reason, that culture uh, that was subject to receiving its Christianity through the Latin language, as opposed to the Greek or the Syriac language, goes through um, a magnificent upheaval uh, of huge proportions. And, and it's the whole culture that does it. And it sounds very clotted and clunky when I say Latinized Christianity. And it sounds as if I'm looking for a fancy word to describe Western Christianity. That's not true. What It's a very specific thing. That part of the world that was subject to or that was susceptible to receiving its Christianity through the, Christ, through the Latin language goes through an upheaval that goes across everything, uh, intellectual life, social, sociological life, commercial life, economic life, intellectual life, everything comes up for grabs. Now, the minute I say to you, go back 500 years from where you are right now, you hit the Great Reformation, right? And the light mm -hmm. goes off. Oh, that's what she's talking about. If you go back 500 years from the Great Reformation or 1,000 years from where we are right now, you hit the 11th century, and what do you get? The Great Schism, or the Great Schism, according to where you grew up and learned to say it. <laughs> same thing, you know. Um, or if you go back 1,500 years from now, or five from the Great Schism, you, you hit the Great Decline and Fall. You go back 2,000 years from right now, or 500 years from the Great Schism or Schism, and you hit the Great Transformation, which is also sometimes called the Great Transition. It doesn't matter which one you call it. So it's just now, as I say, the church um, has been aware of that, and scholars have been aware of it. You can look at some of Tillich's uh, unpublished letters uh, out of the 50s, and you hear him saying, I can feel that we are in it again, that kind of thing. Or if you look at Rauschenbusch's uh, Christianity and the Coming Crisis of the 21st Century, published in, in a 1907, uh, you find the first mm, 35, 40 pages, he keeps talking about the fact we are in reformation, and he, he does it in lowcase R, E hyphen, lowcase F, but uh, reformation. So it was there, but there was a certain... Um, as I say, academic concern, justifiable, may I say. I can remember as an undergraduate in the 50s when everything was cycling and you just wanted to scream and say, get a grip. Uh, you know, uh, come on, let's do something more academically credible. So I'm, I'm certainly sympathetic. I, however, am also convinced that Lewis is right. You have to um, look at what what's staring you in the face, and, and you're a fool if you don't see that there's a pattern. Now, why there's a pattern 
I don't know. Uh, and, and systems theorists do have some theories, and but it is a discipline, uh, it's a fairly new discipline, and one for which I have absolutely no credentials or training. So I stand clear of it and just say, if, if you really want to know the why of the thing, uh, then systems theory will be happy to tell you. Now, I have to also add two things as a footnote if we're going to have this conversation or this monologue. It occurs to me you're getting a monologue, but nonetheless. Oh, uh, no, no, no. <laughs> uh, no, this is great. Okay. I'm loving this. Uh, two, uh, two things. Uh, well, three things have to be said. Uh, the first is when I say susceptible Latinized Christianity, uh, we, we have to realize that uh, what I just said is that part of the world that has also been uh, colonized by Latin Christians and colonialized. So that emergence Christianity um, actually shows up first in, in Europe, long before it comes to the U.S., and it shows up in some parts of South Africa, the Union of South Africa, Zamahoro is its name there, um, because that's Latinized, uh, or that it's a society Latinized. The second thing you have to say about this is that every part of the culture changes. Uh, we, because we are involved with religion, kind of think, oh, it's all about religion. Well, no, dear, it's not. Uh, it's about the culture goes through some kind of, uh, Mark Dry uh, Bishop Dyer calls it a, a rummage sale, which is, I guess, as good a term as any. Everything gets tossed up in the air. And If you remember when they taught you the Reformation in high school, in secular school, they said uh, the Reformation, 16th century, it brought us humanism, it brought us the rise of the middle class. It saw the birth of the nation state. It gave us capitalism for an economic system. And by the way, it gave us reformation, or it gave us Protestantism. Um, and, and it was done in just that tone of voice. We tend to think reformation is Protestantism and forget the rest. That's not true. Uh, every time we do one of these things, everything changes, and that's true of, em of emer the Great Emergence. And it's giving us a different form of Christianity, Emergence Christianity, but it's also giving us a whole different way of doing uh, intellectually, uh, uh, sociologically. Everything has shifted. Um, and and the, the next thing we have to be really careful about is that 500-year cycles occur in... Uh, the history of other peoples, uh, and and I've been stopped two or three times in a public lecture by a historian far more able than I and knowledgeable than I uh, about the world outside of my immediate one, um, talking about the cycling that does occur apparently in some branches of Asian history uh, and in some branches of South American indigenous history. So there's something about 500 years, who knows what, and it doesn't matter. It matters simply that we realize that it does happen in Latinized Christianity. Now, the fourth thing uh, is that a good rabbi would stop me right here, and I've had him do it in a nice way, and say, what you're talking about is not, however, a Christian phenomenon. It is a Judeo-Christian one. Uh, if you go back, they will say, uh, from uh, the Great Transition or the Great Transformation, whatever you want to call it, the change of the era, if you go back 500 years, you hit the Babylonian captivity, uh, mm. the end of First Temple Judaism, the beginning of Second Temple. And if you go back 500 years from that, you hit the end of the uh, Age of the Judges and the establishment of the Davidic dynasty out of which Meshur was to come. And interestingly enough, they will point you, and I'm going to fluff this, I'm not going to remember, Second Kings chapter 6, I believe, is chapter 9. Um, 
uh, in which uh, it says that as the Davidic dynasty is being uh, established, uh, that Solomon um, spent 400 and uh, that after the uh, no after the uh, the return from the Babylonian captivity. I'm sorry. Uh, they spent, um, it was 480 years uh, after um, the uh, exodus. I'll get it right in a minute. I told you I was going to fluff it. Uh, <laughs> it uh, what, what, King, what King says is that King Solomon, uh, 480 years after the people uh, came into the Holy Land, uh, began the construction of the temple. And 20 years after he began it, he finished the construction, and then I think it's Second Kings uh, 9, verse 2 or 3. And then in the 500th year, uh, he celebrated uh, the, uh, consecrated the temple. So that uh, it's, it's scriptural, and it's there. The, the interesting thing about it also is that a good iman uh, will interrupt and say, but it's not a Judeo-Christian phenomenon. It appears to be an Abrahamic phenomenon. Uh, and will argue that Islam goes through the same 500-year cycling. They're just about 650 years out of sync um, with us. It's about wow. 650 of the common era before you can say there's an Islam. At that point, Jerusalem has fallen. Uh, the prophet is dead. But uh, nonetheless, it's, it's about then when you can say, oh, here is a religion. It's organized. I, I can look at it. I can smell it. I can touch it. Um, and they say, if you impose the 500 years starting at 650, uh, you will see the same pattern in Islam, making them argue that they are just now entering um, a period that is analogous to our late 14th and 15th century in European mm. history uh, in our Peri-Reformation or our period of 100, 150 years leading up to the Reformation itself. And they are beginning to speak of, um, of a Martin Luther for Islam, uh, a man named Mohammed Iqbal, uh, whom they are regarding as the Martin Luther. So it's an interesting thing. Um, it's a pattern. It should be taken for what it is, uh, a pattern. It should also, I think, and this maybe is why I make such a thing of it, it also should be taken as a kind of consolation, maybe. Uh, that's maybe not the right word. Uh, as a kind of um, awareness that we're not inventing this wheel, um, that we've been here before, uh, that, there is, uh, that there is some peace in knowing that we didn't do this and that we will survive, uh, and that whatever comes at the other end of this has all, it's always, uh, historically, been better and richer and fuller and nearer to the kingdom of God than mm. what had been. Um, so maybe consolation is the word. Uh, there, there is a certain uh, comfort, uh, mm. comfort, I think, in, uh, in seeing patterns uh, and knowing we're functioning within one. I think one of the fascinating things that, that really struck me uh, in both books and also in thinking about this 500-year cycle and I, and I think it's one of the main emphasis uh, emphases yeah. <laughs> of your of both of your books is the idea of authority. That the real yeah. question that pops up in these five hundred year shifts, the main question, is where now is our yes. authority? Because that old authority structure that ran life for the last five hundred years 
begins to melt away and a new one begins to emerge. Yeah. Can you talk some about that and some examples of that? Yeah, you're absolutely right. And uh, that, of course, is part of the uneasiness right now is that, that we have lost it. I, I find that people are more comfortable, well, all of us, I myself, and more comfortable uh, with the Reformation because that's a history we know a little bit more uh, uh, comfortably or, or completely, right. naturally, uh, than we know the Great Schism or even the Great Decline and Fall. Um, and there, there is, uh, so it's easier to talk about it in terms of Reformation. Um, there is always in one of these rummage sales, to quote Mark Dyer. Uh, <laughs> I love that terminology. I, do, I just love that image, and he is quite ill now, by the way. And um, oh. so every time I use rummage sale, I say a little prayer for him. Um, but uh, Bishop Dyer's uh, rummage sales, every, t- every time they come, there is a, uh, a day, a, a point, there's a, a moment at which we say, aha, we are in it. Uh, and October 31st, 1517, and it's an academic convenience. I mean, let's be, be honest about it. October 31st, 1517 is the day in which Martin Luther published the 95 Theses. He unfortunately did not tack them on the door of the church in Wittenberg, but he did circulate them. It's much better <laughs> tacked. I like the tack, but it's not true. Anyway, he circulated it's, it's, the suckers. It has a more cinematic <laughs> oh, feel to it. Oh, it's much more it? cinematic <laughs> moment. Yeah, just like October 31st is a cinematic moment. You know, as well as I do, he didn't go to bed October 30th, uh, 1517, a dedicated Roman, and wake up the next morning a reformer. I mean, that's just bull. In any way you look at it, but uh, nonetheless, uh, that date has been uh, recorded by history as the date when everybody said, "Aha, we're in it." For the great emergence, it's going to be 9/11, which I Hmm. think is unfortunate. But nobody asked me. It's my job to record and to report, not to form and shape. Um, And so 9/11, so be it. But that will be the moment at which historians 100 years from now, or maybe even 20 or 30 years from now, will say that's when we clearly were into the great emergence and knew it and couldn't move away from it. There Mm -hmm. is, every time when we hit that moment, there is this resounding silence in which the great question that through the vault of history comes roaring down, so now where is the authority? Or, Mm. so now, how shall we live, which is the way the emergence would rather put it, because they're not fond of authority. But basically, who's calling the shots? Who's making the decision about what's good and what's not? The whole structure, the whole web of meaning um, and value has just been destroyed. And there is a period. The the 500-year cycle has a, a cycle within it, always. Uh, there is that moment uh, in which you realize we don't know who's making the rules. The whole thing has kind of mm-hmm. gone to hell in a handbasket. And there's a period of about a century in which that question has to be answered. We are 10, 12 years into dealing with that question. We don't have the answer yet. And I'm probably not going to live long enough to see it. I don't know um, the, the answer. Then there's a period of about 200, and, and it takes that whole century not only to answer it, but to establish it as a reasonable and defensible um, line of authority. Then there's a period of about 250 years in which everybody agrees that that's where the authority lies. They may not like it, or we may not like it, but we all agree there it is. And then there's a period of 150 years in which bit by bit, chip by chip, little tight, little by little tight, we knock the thing down and we arrive all over again at the morning of October 31st, 1517, and the resounding silence. Now what do we do? In in terms of the Reformation, which is a little bit more familiar, um, you can look by 13... 
quit. Let's go to the Great Schism. Well, the Great Schism happened, and East and West, Latinized Christianity, moved away from Orthodox Christianity. When that happened, church councils, or what's called counselor Christianity, ceased to have the authority. Uh, No longer was the world going to be ruled by the councils of good men coming together from around the world and meeting and deciding where the authority was or what to do about a specific thing. Counselor Christianity and counselor government ceased to exist, and the Christian part of it, and to some extent the political power as well, went to the papacy in Rome. And so uh, from the Great Schism right up until about 1390, uh, somewhere along in there, uh, power rested with the pope. And uh, so did political and secular power. Let's, let's be honest. The Pope uh, and the Emperor ruled kind of co-jointly as co-regents um, for 250 years. When uh, the papacy began to exceed uh, reason or to be, um, one doesn't want to be unkind here because what happened was it just, uh, it didn't corrupt exactly. It just um, became too removed, perhaps, from what it should be doing. I don't know. Anyway, uh, by 1390, you've got three armed men running around all over the north of Italy, the south of Europe, Urban, Alexander, and Clement, all claiming to be uh, the Pope and raping and burning and pillaging. And, uh, you know, and, and even the most illiterate uh, peasant could figure out that they couldn't all three be chosen by God to take the chair of Peter. Uh, mm. And I laugh and say to audiences, unless God's schizophrenic, which doesn't look real reasonable. Uh, so so uh, from 1390... Well, there was one for each member of the Trinity, There was one for right? each, as each part of the Godhead. That's right. Should have thought of that. Darn, you know, you're good. So anyway, long story short, from that time on, you can see thing after thing begin to chip away at the absolute authority of the papacy, the Curia and the Magisterium. And, you know, we know some of the big ones. The fall of Constantinople brings humanism in, uh, and humanism doesn't tolerate authority all that well. The printing press certainly had, a, you know, uh, the, the new theory, the new science had an impact. Uh, finding out the world wasn't flat uh, had an impact. I mean, thing after thing after thing happened mm-hmm. in that 150 years till you get to 1517 that brought down the absolute authority of the papacy. It did not destroy the Roman Catholic Church. I've said over and over again, I'm going to have it written on my tombstone. Whatever (laughs) holds hegemony, when one of these things happens, whatever holds pride of place, hegemony, uh, does not cease to exist. It just doesn't. It drops back uh, and has to reconfigure, but it goes on. What it has to do is make room for this new form of Christianity that's happening in the same way that Protestantism isn't dead. It isn't going to die. It just is going to have to reconfigure and make room for emergence Christianity. So is Roman Catholicism. And the truth of it is that, you know, if Roman Catholics had been as neurotic about statistics 500 years ago as we are, they would have probably just burned the Vatican down and all moved to China because (laughs) there was nothing to make Protestants out of except Roman Catholics. So, of course, Mm. they lost people, you know. But but Christianity didn't lose people. The King of God didn't lose people. King of God isn't losing people right now. They're just sort of changing how they do business, how they do Mm. ecclesial business. And in that shift, uh, when, when finally Luther posted the 95, and it was obvious that the absolute control of the Curia and the Magisterium and the papacy were over, uh, was over, uh, then there was a, so now who's telling us what's right and wrong? Who's telling us 
what to do, who's telling us which wars are just and which aren't just, who's telling us. You know, every single thing suddenly lost its authority. And Luther and company, he shouldn't be blamed for all of it, um, you know, uh, originally came forth with five answers to that. Sola Scriptura, Sola Gratia, Sola Thetis. But ultimately, it was the Sola Scriptura that, that held. Uh, and that means Scripture only and only the Scripture. So Scripture Luther, becomes the new authority it becomes for the, the Reformation. New authority. And what it did, and more than one wit has laughed and said, what happens is, Luther just takes a flesh and blood pope and deposes him and puts a paper one up there. Mm. Uh, and that's a mm. fair accusation of what happened. I don't think it's a fair criticism of Luther. I really don't. What happened, and you and I both know this, is that Sola Scriptura morphed over the time into Protestant inerrancy, or biblical inerrancy, whichever mm-hmm. one you want to call it. Uh, it developed into a highly intellectualized, word-oriented, uh, rhetorically-based um, uh, practice of the faith. And um, about 150, now 160 years ago, that wasn't going to play in Poughkeepsie anymore. Uh, but mm-hmm. it lasted for it. But it lasted for uh, up until about 1840, 42, 43, when we began to become uneasy and saying, "Hmm, this one, uh, this one isn't going to work." And then you arrive at somewhere around 9/11 or the turn of the era into the 21st century, whenever you want to date it. 9/11, I guess, will be as good as any. Uh, when you realize, indeed. Uh, Protestant inerrancy, uh, biblical inerrancy, as it has been defined for the last 350, 400 years, is probably not tenable. Uh, and having mm. said that, I can hear the crashes and the groans. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, and, uh, and I'm, uh, after all these years, I should have got used to the crashes and the groans and mean nothing hurtful. Uh, there's no, it's, there's no, I'm not an iconoclast and there's no fun in pulling down other people's faith and belief. I, I, I just, uh, I would say, as, as does emergence Christianity, uh, uh, you know, uh, inerrancy, which, which Bible uh, are you going to hold as inerrant? There are approximately, mm. what, 290-something on sale at Amazon now, right? Which one are wow. you going to uh, quote? Which one are you going to use? Uh, which uh, canon are you going to use? Uh, as Latin Christians, we have a canon that basically was certified by Constantine the Great, the emperor, um, and makes our canon very different. Uh, Maybe Constantine the not-so-great. The not-so-great, that's right. Well, it certainly is suffering right lately of late. Uh, but, it, you know, certainly there were scholars and theologians who, who counseled him. But basically it was the emperor who determined our canon. And like it or not, uh, even in Latinized Christianity, we don't have the same canon. Anglicans have a canon that's different from Protestants, and both of those are different from a Roman Catholic. But dear Lord, they're entirely different from what Orthodoxy has, or mm. Ethiopian Christianity, or Coptic Christianity, I mean, or Armenian Christianity. All of them have, uh, some, one of them has as many as 93 books. So which is the canon you're talking about? And uh, let's be honest, also, now that we have uh, the scholarship that shows us some of the corruptions of the manuscripts we do claim and uh, the edition mm-hmm. made probably in all good faith but some of those are significant changes theologically and we can date exactly uh, when they were made so um, and changing the nature of the theology so what have you got 
And uh, one of the things I like about emergence theologians and emergence Christians, just plain old John and Q public uh, uh, emergence Christians, is that they're passionate about the Scripture, and they believe it is actually true, and they also think that it is enormously arrogant to want it to be factually true. Uh, that is, mm. to think that we can reduce God Almighty to uh, the confines and the comprehensibility, if you will, um, uh, of the human brain, or even to the constraints of time when he who is uh, outside of time and created it. Um, and, and I think there's a real wisdom in that. Nonetheless, what we've got is, as you said, um, the uh, a vacuum right now in authority. Uh, what, what are you going to take? Uh, you can't you can't argue it by scripture. You and I both know, uh, you know, Jesus would have failed systematic theology, and Lord knows, <laughs> Jesus, would, you know, Paul would have. Uh, it, it, it just uh, systematic. He would have been taking hermeneutics over and <laughs> over, over and over. And he over. would have flipped the thing. You know, it wasn't ever going to happen. Um, and uh, there, there is just a, a wisdom in um, arriving at the humility that says. Uh, the Bible is the Word of God, the living Word of God amongst us, and to be reverenced. Um, and the question is, how how do we reverence it, and how do we appropriately use and understand and discern and comprehend it, and where is the authority in that reconfiguration? And we don't have the answer yet. Um, mm. We'll see where it goes. I've got a theory or two, uh, as you know, because you read the book. But, <laughs> uh, but there are theories uh, right now about where it's probably going to go. But clearly just citing Scripture uh, isn't going to work as the authority for anything, because almost always now you can cite a different section of Scripture that arrives at a different conclusion. Mm-hmm. And certainly you can uh, monkey with translations uh, and, and arrive uh, at... At real paradoxy is what it's called. It, it seems like with with these five hundred year cycles that you know what you're documenting in both books is the idea that as that that you were that you were saying this idea that it seems like there's a deconstruction first, yes, there uh, is. A, an ongoing deconstruction yes. that ends up kind of getting us back to neutral mm-hmm. and then a rebuilding on those foundations of something new. That's right. Can you kind of trace um, some of the, some of the deconstruction that maybe we're just finishing up and maybe where, where the great emergence, what, what do you see as really forming the great emergence? What are the questions that really led us to the point that we're at, yeah. um, and and where do you see this deconstruction process kind of stopping? Yeah, uh, and isn't it interesting that we we hit a period of deconstruction by that name uh, in the last yeah. century? We finally actually called the beast what it was, named it what it was, deconstruction, uh, and that uh, the the period of 150 years, the period of deconstruction that happens each time is called, in academic terms, called a peri. I prefer to call it the pick-up, but it's the same thing. Uh, the peri-emergence or the peri-reformation or the peri-cism, where you see that uh, that 150 years of deconstruction. Uh, and it's, it's not, uh, it, there's almost an innocence to it uh, uh, originally, uh, a kind of, well, innocence, an unawareness that uh, oh dear, that's what we're doing. Uh, ours is commonly the, the peri-emergence. 
is commonly dated from 1842, 43 or 44, depending on which one you want. 42 is the year when Michael Faraday, if you watch Lost, you're aware that Michael Faraday is a character in Lost, and it, this is why. He's the granddaddy of the mess we're in. Um, he was a British chemist who retired in 42, went home and worked in his own um, den, study, whatever you want to call it, uh, all of 43, and in 44 began to publish what's now called field theory in which he uh, began to describe mathematically and in scientific terms electricity uh, and conductivity. He even fooled with gravity, though nobody has cracked that chestnut yet. Um, but he began to uh, explain what had been as, as perfectly natural phenomena that could be controlled and disciplined and used, uh, phenomena that previously had been attributed to the angels. Uh, and that sounds so antique and funny now. It wasn't funny at all uh, at, at that time um, because uh, for uh, suddenly Zeus wasn't throwing the thunderbolts anymore. It was uh, perfectly... Beyond that, uh, the minute we could control electricity, the minute he told us what energy, what it was, uh, and what to do with it and conductivity, he opened the way to almost everything that informs modern life. Certainly uh, the Internet, the clothes we have on, uh, our uh, conductivity, technology, the, the motors that drive us, every single thing begins with Faraday. It's a major, major shift um, theologically and culturally and intellectually. Uh, now, there are uh, thinkers, and, and Lee Schmid um, is uh, is certainly one of them. He's got a, a marvelous book out called, well, it's in its second edition now, called Restless Souls, in, in which he would argue that um, the shift in spirituality, and that's a huge part of what we're going through, is the deconstruction of the interior life um, and mm -hmm. the subjective life, whatever you call it. Uh, Schmidt argues um, brilliantly, I think, and, and persuasively, that you can see the changes in subjectivity um, with the transcendentalists, which would date it back to the 18, early 1830s. And I have no trouble with that argument. I, I think that the subjectivity is probably better dated uh, with, with the work of, of, of um, Mesmer, Franz Mesmer, which uh, puts it over right in the time of, of uh, Faraday. But it doesn't matter. It's a, it's a moot point. Uh, what does matter is that even as he is changing the world of physical science and birthing physics, we didn't have physics before this. Physics is born in the, 18th, uh, the 19th century as a, as a field of study by that name, as, as regarded as separate and a distinct entity. Um, so that spirituality has changed enormously with the coming of subjectivity and with the coming of psychology and now neurobiology and neuroscience and all that. Um, physics, uh, the coming of physics has changed all of this because we understand the physical world now as physical uh, and um, has, has led to um, redefinition of, of God, if you will, and of what we understand as God as, as almost a, a demythologizing uh, God uh, that has come into it. Um, and, and so you can watch it from then right on. And, and what you hit, by 1900, uh, you have hit Albert Schweitzer, um, who at that time was a pop star to the extent that you could have a pop star before you had television, uh, <laughs> you know, which is a good question. But uh, Schweitzer and Enrico Caruso, uh, the great singer, were both very famous, uh, obviously Schweitzer on the organ, um, and uh, they got a lot of press, and Schweitzer in 1900 
suddenly said, dear God, what if Jesus of Nazareth and the Christ I worship aren't the same thing? Mm. And then answered himself with, of course they're not. They're 2,000 years of us monkeying with him. And uh, in a panic, uh, tried to discover uh, who Jesus of Nazareth was, decided he could never know Jesus, but that what he could do was try to live his life as Jesus, um, he, as he thought Jesus would have lived it. And consequently, he gave up the organ, except as a hobby, and, and went to med school and then, as we all know, went to Africa uh, and began to live his life as he thought Jesus of Nazareth would really live. But in the course of it, uh, he, in, the, in the course of his epiphany or his agony, and there was nothing funny about what Schweitzer went through, he wrote a book called The Search of the Historical Jesus. And you get the birth of that term, uh, the historical Jesus. And you will see that for the, of the whole of the 20th century, uh, you have scholar after scholar, theologian after theologian, uh, trying to answer Schweitzer's question, and in the course of it, discovering texts, and, and, and a lot of it is also the growing sophistication of archaeology. Qumran and, and Nagamadi, uh, in reverse order, Nagamadi and then Qumran in 45 and 47, um, certainly are the result of a more sophisticated science and a more sophisticated tools with which to get at what was buried under the ground uh, and to reconstruct it. So that the canon uh, suddenly goes under severe uh, change. And, and one of the things emergence Christianity will, I suspect, end up doing, or that the church will end up doing sometime in the next 50 or 60 years, is calling for a revisitation of the canon, not just ours, but everybody's. If mm -hmm. you look at uh, the, the years right after the Great Transition or Great Transformation, when... Uh, Jerusalem fell and Temple Judaism ends, one of the first things that happens is that the rabbis begin to construct the Mishnah. Um, and I suspect we're going to begin to do, this is one of my predictions that I'm comfortable making, we're, we're going to begin to do something analogous, analogous to that in the Christian church uh, to begin to look at some of those early 1st and 2nd century manuscripts that we didn't have when the canon was established. They'd been lost or, or misplaced or something. But, you know, Justin Martyr, for goodness sakes, he, he, he studied under a man who studied under John, uh, uh, St. John the, the Apostle. Now, you know, that's only one generation removed. He's got something to say that has immediacy. How foolish to not listen to what he has to say and to honor it. So thus and so. Anyway, the canon began to take some licks. Uh, and then in 05, you get to, Schweitz, uh, to Einstein. Uh, and when you get to Einstein, deconstruction is going full speed ahead. Uh, because what he's going to tell us is uh, what energy is. What he's going to tell us is that they're atoms and that he can split them. Welcome to Hiroshima. Uh, welcome yeah. to our awareness that we can indeed destroy this whole thing. And welcome to a real surge, if you will, back to concern about what it is this environment is. What is this earth? And a rediscovery that this is what God gave us. And um, even in the book of Revelation. This is what we have, uh, and it's ours to care for and ours to be responsible for. Uh, and, and you can trip that right back to 1905. Uh, and, and then, uh, of course, you get, um, you get the whole business of relativity. Um, and that I can tell you how fast the thing's going but not where it is, or I can tell out at the quantum level, or I can tell you uh, where it is and, and not how fast it's going, one or the other. Mm. 
and it's all relative and that time indeed can be bent and time can be slowed and it looks like now maybe time can even be reversed which means you may someday meet your great-great-grandfather. Wouldn't that be a kick? But, uh, you know, <laughs> we're a long way from that. But but nonetheless, and so it opened up the universe. Uh, and we can indeed go blithely, say not blithely, but we can go sailing out into space. And we can indeed see the history of, of the universe uh, right before our eyes and the magnificence of the cosmos. All of that happens um, in 05 with Einstein's four papers. And one of the things that traditional or inherited Christianity, whether it's Anglican or, or Roman Catholic or uh, uh, Protestant, has failed to realize, uh, has failed to come to grips with, is that science uh, is a big part of mm. what has changed. Uh, physical science is a huge part of what has changed everything about how we understand life, about how you and I mm-hmm. talk, what we talk about, the, the things we use to make life work. Every single thing, uh, and, and the way we conceptualize God, um, it's yeah. all been changed by science. And it, to not engage the wonder of science um, is incredibly stupid. Uh, well, well it, even, it even seems like, you know, with, with you mentioning the theory of relativity, it seems like that really set the, it set the course it for did. the 20th century. Of course So it did. much so that you know even the idea of relativity that just as the as the scientific community in the time of Einstein that established authority pushed back mm-hmm. into what he was doing yes. it seems like on the religious sphere in in the in the Christian world that that's really the same thing that we're even going through now that that deconstruction is all about relativity it's all about it subjectivism that's right uh, it's absolutely the same thing. right on you were absolutely and we have that, right and we have those same authority structures that are now Pushing against the great emergence, um, yeah. such as the fundamentalists, the the and go you know, through um, that one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's just fascinating. It what? is. It's it's the Counter Reformation, or you know, it's it's mm. it's Protestantism reconfiguring. Uh, it's it wow. really is deja vu all over again. Uh, you know, uh, thank you, Groucho. Uh, it, but it really <laughs> is. You can look at exactly what Catholicism did five hundred years ago and see the. I mean. It, 500 years ago, they, re, they even reinstituted the Inquisition. Now, how quaint was that? You know, uh-huh. uh, you think we got trouble with fundamentalists. At least we're not burning people at the stake uh, <laughs> <laughs> anymore for it. But you're absolutely right. And, and so physical science and the change in subjectivity, spirituality, has changed enormously. And that, too, is uh, to some extent, or I'd say 75 percent uh, anyway, to science, to neuroscience and psychology and psychiatry and, and our awareness of what the subjective human being is. And, of course, there's one other thing, and that's in 1906, Azusa Street, uh, mm. when uh, suddenly, or it appears suddenly, though you can see, uh, there's, I can do a whole lecture on the lead up to it, but in, in 1906, you get um, the coming of the Spirit, the descent of the Holy Spirit, on those gathered in Azusa Street in Los Angeles under the pastorate of William Seymour. Mm-hmm. And for the first time since Pentecost, um, the Holy Spirit is uh, visible with all of the charisms of glossolalia and xenolalia and uh, healing and tongues of fire, um, predictably and reproducibly and constantly en masse, uh, over, uh, uh, corporately that is, over a large mm-hmm. group of people. Uh, and it continues night after night after night after night. 
and uh, we get the birth of Pentecostalism, and obviously in due time, uh, you know, the Charismatics are also uh, formed, and so you get Pentecostals and Charismatics. They're now called the Renewalists. Uh, and if you if you uh, want to talk about it, the truth of it is that there are more Pentecostals in the world than there are citizens in the United States of America. Mm, and if you mm. put Charismatics and Pentecostals together, they're the fourth largest religion in the world. Um, wow. Yeah, and so that's what we're talking about. And uh, Inherited Church um, has, a, has a lot of trouble with that, because what's happened is you've got a completion of the Trinity in a way. Um, and the ancient prophets used to argue that there would indeed be three stages to human dispensation. There would be the 2,000 years of God the Father, and they would go from the Garden of Eden to the cross. Mm. And then 2,000 years of God the Son, and they would go from the cross to guess what? 2,000 of the Common Era. Mm. And then mm. we would start 2,000 years of, of God the Holy Spirit. None, none of which should be understood as de-emphasizing the other parts of the Trinity, right, but right. rather as a perichoesis, to use a popular word barred from... Uh, orthodoxy, perichoesis, or the dance of the Trinity will be complete when all three parts are are visible and acknowledged in worship and um, fully uh, visible and operative uh, in human affairs, and then we will come to the end um, of the whole thing. So whatever you want to do with it, with the authority question, there is absolutely no doubt that the spirit is going to be part of it um, in the way, uh, in, in a way, I don't know what the way is going to be, but in a way that will be different from how the spirit has been engaged and described and taught um, in, in the previous 2,000 years of Christian history. Harvey Cox in March of, of 210, and, and there is no more credentialed or wide, more widely respected religion is working today than Harvey Cox. Um, Harvey Cox published a book called The Future of Faith, in which he lays out what I just did uh, brilliantly, um, with far more uh, credential, obviously, than I do, and with far more skill. Um, but uh, talking about and um, emergence theologians are enormously aware of this, uh, and so there is real engagement of the spirit and real sense that. Scripture must be discerned through the Spirit in community. And mm. I think that's where authority is going to end up being. Uh, and in community is just as operative as the other words I just used in that phrase. Uh, and, and, and I've had emergents laugh and say, you know, if, if, I, if I discern alone um, and I see something between what I think I'm being told and what Scripture seems to be saying, then I uh, decide to go with what I think I'm hearing from the scripture how do I from the spirit how do I know it's you know not the pizza I ate last night for supper <laughs> instead of the Holy Spirit which is a really good question uh, which is why uh, the community matters why mm. if we're going to try to understand scripture and gain act, uh, direction from it or a sense of what we should be doing um, then it better be four or five of us praying if it, if it means praying all night or if it means praying every night for a week uh, for guidance of the Spirit, for enlightenment about what it is we've been told and uh, how we are to interpret this Scripture. So uh, ultimately it rests still on the Scripture, but it rests on the Scripture as 
taught and illumined and opened uh, by people in deep prayer with the Spirit and the Spirit's guidance, as opposed to, and this sounds wrong, and I don't mean to be offensive, as opposed to people um, uh, who are thinking their way uh, through it in an intellectual congress. Uh, the intellectual congress uh, has brought us this far, and there certainly was nothing wrong with it. It's not a condemnation. It's just a statement uh, of, of truth that um, we deconstructed that and found that uh, to some extent one can perhaps overthink things and trust the intellect too far without uh, pursuing pursuing illumination uh, from the Spirit itself and in deep prayer. So it's a different way of going at it, a very different way as a matter mm-hmm. of fact. And it deconstructs. I, I can talk forever, but ultimately you and I both know I just deconstructed a good deal of the last 250, 300 years. Yeah, um, yeah. And, and really this is, I mean, really, Phyllis, this is a huge part of my own story that honestly I didn't good. understand until I read your book because I uh, um, I grew up Southern Baptist. I ended uh-huh. up leaving the Baptist church mm-hmm. and become, getting involved in the charismatic movement. Mm-hmm. Um, I became a, <laughs> I became a pastor in the four square church. Yeah. Oh, wonderful. And, yes. Four square is up, part of the, of the Perry emergence, by the way. And I ended up, I ended up leaving the four square church. Um, just got tired of the whole institutional mm-hmm. thing and mm-hmm. unplugged from that. And I tell you, I never could fit in my mind how I got from being a four square pastor to how I became someone who embraced so many of the um, ideas from emergence Christianity and, and really, in many ways, walk lockstep with most of what's going on in emergence. <laughs> I never could figure that out. And I read your book and I went, oh, my gosh, this <laughs> is exactly <laughs> this okay. is the journey, because for That's me, right. I, I know one of the uh, one of the large things that um, Steve, my co-host on the podcast, who went through a, a really similar journey. One of the things that we've talked about a lot is the idea that once we embraced um, the ministry of the spirit, it it was kind of a, the, the timer began to go off <laughs> as to how long you could really embrace the closed canon view That's right. that we had, because now all of a sudden, um, you know, if you, be, if you believe that the spirit speaks today, it has to change your relationship with the canon. Of course it does. Absolutely. Absolutely. There is no way to avoid it. Yeah, there's no way. Because if he's speaking to me today, then that canon can't contain what I'm hearing today. That's right. Uh, it's, it's just such a... It, 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 I just want to thank you for that, because that really has helped me tremendously understand my own story. And and I know that as we're, uh, you know, gosh, I could talk your, I could sit here and listen to you talk and talk your ear off for. No, I could talk your ear off, my dear. <laughs> and also, I have to tell you, you are making my, you're making my whole day, or maybe my whole week. Uh, I want to thank you for what you just said because, uh, because it's the kindest gift I can be given. That's why. Thank mm. you. <laughs> mm. Well, thank you because this is, uh, this has really helped me, and I think it's going to help a lot of people out there understand why we are where we are. Um, there's, I think it's just so important. One of the, one of the interesting things to me that has really stuck out because this is something that I've found myself saying over and over and over for probably the last six years is the idea that, um, as we've gotten into this new thing that we're calling the great emergence, the deconstruction of the idea of experts and this, and this rise of what, what I'm hearing called by people 
um, like Tony Jones and yourself, Wiki Theology. Wiki Theology. Um, yes. Can you talk a little bit about the the um, kind of demise of the expert and and <laughs> and um, what you he mean by gone. that? <laughs> he left the building. <laughs> he left the building. And, and Tony Jones, uh, you know, you and I both know is probably one of the uh, one of the more brilliant uh, theologians to to walk the earth anytime, uh, hmm. and certainly an astute commentator uh, and uh, a, a bit of a rabble riser too. Uh, he, he calls <laughs> it like he sees it. Um, and uh, it, it's wonderful just to, sometimes just to listen to it. And, and he calls it wiki theology simply because uh, the truth of it is, whether we like it or not, Wikipedia is, per, uh, is considerably more accurate than Britannica. Uh, yeah. in its print edition. It just is. Actually, some fool went through and counted the thing, and it's like 7%. In 2002, it was found to be 7% more accurate. It's probably more than that now. Um, you know, uh, I would hate to have had that job. <laughs> well, you can't, I, I don't even know how you could arrive at that. I saw the statistic, and it was an incredible source, and I think, boy, somebody needs a life. But anyway, <laughs> whatever. But the truth of it is, information is growing at such an exponential rate. Now, by the expectations of Moore's Law, if you're going to listen to it, that's going to slow down. But right now, um, our just sheer technological information doubles in something like every nine months and 27 days or something wow. like that, um, wow. which is to say nobody can keep up with it. There's no way on God's earth anybody can keep up with it. Uh, the Great China Brain Project just what it broke the petaflap in May of, geez, 10, I guess, 12, 10. Um, and now it's breaking them all over the place like there's nothing to it. What's a petaflap? Mm. It, it, it's when one computer can make a quadrillion um, procedures or decisions in one second accurately. Now, which brain is going to keep up with that, please? I mean, if you wired wow. half of New York City together, uh, they couldn't do that. You know, the, mm. we, we can't do it. Um, and so what we have created is uh, a world based on uh, information that is more than uh, that we can any of us can take in, which means that the only way we're going to survive is for each of us to take a little tiny bit, like an anthill, um, and bring what we can to the common party uh, in order to try to, to go forward. Uh, we just so who wants to trust an expert? Um, show me an expert. I mean. I, I, I come from a hierarchical faith, right? I'm, I'm Anglican. Uh, I, I love my bishops when I'm not fussing about them. I love them anyway. You know, but uh, the ones I like best are those who will be the first to say, I can't cover all the bases. I'm bishop of a, of a diocese, which has got maybe, you know, 100 parishes in it. I can't cover that. Uh, I, I can't keep up with all the social media. I can't keep up with all the theological changes. I can't keep up with all the stuff that's grinding out of the presses. I can't keep up with all the seminary stuff. I, I can't keep up. I can't keep up. And they begin to stutter. Um, mm. And the, the truth of it is, of course they can't. None of us can. Uh, and so it's going to have to be by group, like an anthill, mm. as opposed to a beehive that really does have a queen that runs the place. Uh, you've got an, uh, an anthill that is communal and organization, and that's what we're going to have to have. If you look at Silicon Valley, uh, first of all, you'll have to have a strong drink after you do it. But if if you <laughs> if, if you look at some of the um, some of the newer firms that have come out of a time which was firmly within Great Emergence time, 
they're all more or less organized that way. I, I mean, uh, from Bill Gates on, they've made a big deal, haven't they, about how authority is sort of disseminated. I'm sure if you went too far, Mr. Gates would step in, or Zuckerberg, or somebody would step in. But, but um, nonetheless, there's a kind of um, communal, if you will, mm. uh, organization. Mm. And certainly uh, emergence Christianity as it's organizing uh, and it is. You can see divisions of it now, or components of it. They're not divisions, components. Emerging Christians are different from emergent Christians. Uh, they're different from neo-monastics. All of them are different from fresh expressions. All of them are different from hyphenated. All of them are different from... I mean, you know, um, they're there in the same way that Protestants are all Methodist, Baptist, and Presbyterians, and Lutherans, and they're not all the same. Um, mm. So emergence Christianity is a rubric that covers a whole lot of things. But as it begins uh, to mature and take on form, uh, it has a vastly different ecclesiology from um, what traditional or inherited church had. Um, Scott McKnight, in 2006, uh, at Westminster Seminary, I believe it was. I think it's Westminster. Anyway, uh, he gave an address in which he argued, among other things, that when the dust had all died down, we would find that emergence Christianity has changed ecclesiology as much, mm. or has had as great an impact, I think he said, on ecclesiology as it has on theology. And yeah. at the time I thought he was right, now I know for sure he was absolutely right, prescient and correct. Uh, and one of the places you see it is that from everything from the liturgy uh, to the organization of it to the refusal to buy uh, property, if it's at all possible to avoid owning real estate, all of that uh, is a move away from hierarchy. Um, it's a determination that it has to be communal, and that's changing uh, the nature of what church is. Uh, yeah. It just is, and how you do church uh, and what it means to be church. Um, and so hierarchy is definitely uh, suspect. And there just aren't any experts anymore. Well, be, beyond the box is a we're we are a uh, I guess a, a big indicator. <laughs> yes, you are <laughs> for for our own because honestly, Phyllis, for for this community, um, we have a community of just people all around the world. That for many of us, our church is this. It's That's getting right. together in community on Facebook, on mm -hmm. the internet. That's right, and and sharing life and sharing theology and. It is changing. That's how, right. do, how do you, because you are, and, and part of this just might be because you've been around the block, but you are so comfortable in your own skin and in the idea that while, you know, I would identify you and I think many other people would too as an expert. Well, how do you, yeah. how do you keep this from being, um, how has someone like yourself kept from this being a threat to them? Never because thought I think about that's it. a, I think that's a huge, <laughs> I think that's a huge thing is for so many people, for pastors and for denominational leaders and all of these people. Um, I think the emergence in many ways is a huge threat to them because it, it just no might, it just might put them out of a job. Oh, it's gonna, it's gonna. Yeah, yeah. And uh, one of the it things, did me. <laughs> yeah, one of the things that I, I can laugh about, but that is absolutely not funny in a way, is that. When I uh, go in to, to talk to a group of, of clergy, 100, 150 mm -hmm. clergy from a diocese or, or a synod or, or whatever, um, and if it's just clergy in the room, almost always about 15 or 20 minutes into it, 
somebody, and it's usually a man, and it's usually a, a, a fellow who's 50 to 55, somewhere along mm-hmm. there, uh, will say, this is all well and good, but what I really want you to tell me is, do I have to go get another job? Do I need to go prepare for another career? Mm-hmm. Am I going to be able to ride this thing out for another 10 to 12 years? And that's a heartbreaker. Uh, it's a heartbreaker to hear. It's a heartbreaker to try to answer. Because the truth of it is about a third of you are going to have to go find a different job. Uh, you know, I mean, it's it, it, a quarter to a third. Uh, it's, it's, you're not going to be able to write it out. Are you going to have to go be a tent maker? Are you going to have to find some way to, um, to support yourself financially if you're going to continue to serve? Uh, and, uh, as, as parishes and, and congregations close down or dwindle, and go to halftime and that kind of thing. Um, it's absolutely a threat. Of course it is. If you've given your life, well, you know, you've done it. If you've given your life uh, to preparing to be a pastor within a particular denomination um, and then um, find in mid-career at a time when you feel too settled to be able to change much uh, but still have a lot of years when you have to support a family or yourself anyway, uh, what do you do? Uh, what do you do? You feel betrayed, for starters, um, in, in every way. Uh, and uh, so it's tough, and there's, there's nothing funny about that. The same thing obviously happened in all the other previous go-rounds, uh, but that doesn't help uh, anyway. And, and as for me, I, I never really thought about it, Robert, until you ask. Um, I don't think of my. I guess I don't think of myself <laughs> as a... <laughs> I, it, it, I, there, I will be 80 my birthday, um, and there is a certain, I don't care what anybody says, you could not pay me $5 zillion to go back to the other side of 70. It mm. stinks back there. Um, mm. Up here, there's a certain um, impunity, is that the word? Uh, there's, mm. there's very little threat. Uh, it's, it would be really hard to threaten me. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I mean, I'm sure it could be done, and I'm not tempting the gods, but, but you know, basically. Uh, so all my money is going to uh, dry out and go away. Well, maybe I'm going to get off the bus sometime in the next five or six years. I've got, you know, I mean, uh, I should worry. But um, so there's not that I, um, I can still be hurt, obviously, when I am misunderstood or misquoted or... Um, uh, offend somebody. Certainly, you're not invulnerable. I don't. I don't mean that. But I never thought of myself as a expert. Um, maybe as eternally fascinated because I can afford to be fascinated at 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 my age. Um, mm, mm. And maybe, um, interestingly enough, that's a very good question. I never intended to get here. This was not what I intended to do. I'm a failed academic. Uh, you know, I I went from classroom lecturing at college level to college dean and, and was dean for six years when I realized that it um, was not what I wanted to do. It wasn't exciting enough. It, it, it's administration with a fancy name. Um, and, <laughs> uh, you know, and, and I enjoyed doing it. I don't mean that, but uh, it was time to go. And went into publishing because it was the nearest thing to the academic life. Um, mm. and, and then somehow ended up in, in religion uh, and religion publishing without ever intending to, which, which led to this. So there was no intentionality, uh, though I look back and I can see that there was a sort of, uh, it wouldn't make you a Presbyterian again, there was a sort of a uh, pattern to it that I would not have perceived. But I don't think that... Um, 
What I'm stammering around to say is I don't think I got here by accident, and I think yeah. most of what I say or have been led to discover or led to read or told to listen to has been told me by the by the Lord, uh, if you want yeah. to put a, that face on it, um, to go forth and do. That doesn't mean it was right or certified by heaven. It just means it was the piece that needed to be played, and I was supposed to play it. Um, well, so, and play it yeah. and play it. You're doing well <laughs> because somebody like me that's that's 37 and hadn't been, you know, only has a little bit of life experience. I just got to say, you have so affirmed so many of us out there that wondered if this was a Gen X phenomenon, oh, and we and we look at people like yourself and like Brian McLaren and yes, oh, um, Lord, some yeah. of the elder statesmen in, in yeah. this movement. And it just affirms to us that we're not going crazy. You are not going crazy. You are not so, going crazy. Keep the faith, my friend. Keep the yes, faith. You're doing yes. a-okay. You're doing just fine. Yes. Phyllis, thank you so thank much. Thank you. Thank you. I enjoyed it. Wow. I don't know how much good stuff you can squeeze into an hour, but I think we got a lot in there. Phyllis, thank you so much for taking the time to do this conversation, to have this conversation um, I, I just really consider it a privilege once again. And folks, if you've enjoyed this one-hour podcast, you should definitely check out Phyllis's books. Um, the book, The Great Emergence, which came out a few years ago, that's kind of the book that was the forerunner to the book we've been talking about today, Emergence Christianity. So if you get a chance, pick up both books. Um, I think you'll really enjoy both. There's so much good history in there. There's so much good perspective on not only where we're at, um, in the 21st century in Christianity, but how we got here and, and maybe even more important, some ideas about possibly where we're going and where we might see this movement go. Uh, just amazing stuff. The great emergence, emergence Christianity. You can order them, of course, at Amazon. You can order them anywhere you want. Um, Baker actually has a direct toll free number that you can call 1-800-877-2665 to pick up a copy as well. Thank you so much, Phyllis, for taking the time and for sharing your heart, your passion, your love for Jesus, your love for history, your love for theology. Um, I just have been blessed by this podcast, and I think a lot of other people are going to be too. If you want to join the conversation, please feel free to do so. We've got a bunch of ways for you to do it. The predominant way that we dialogue about the podcasts, and not only about the podcasts, but even more so just within the community itself, is on Facebook, facebook.com slash beyond the box. Um, when you go on that page, feel free to either comment on anything you see going on there to start a new thread on maybe an idea or a question that you've been thinking of, or maybe a, maybe a thought that you feel like the Lord's dropped into your heart that you want to get some feedback on. It's a great sounding board. So definitely get involved in that community. If you get a chance, we would love to have you be part of that. Um, go to the website, beyondtheboxpodcast.com. Feel free to comment on any episodes you see there. Feel free to put any uh, questions, comments, snide remarks, anything you want are welcome at Beyond the Box. Just, I guess, be nice. <laughs> That's the only thing we ask. Um, let's love God and love each other, huh? So beyondtheboxpodcast.com. Feel free to, ep to, to comment on those episodes, but also feel free to leave your idea submissions there. If you'd like to put in ideas for a future episode, please feel free to share that there. You'll also see on the right-hand side of that page a Call Me widget that you can fill in and submit 
and our answering service will actually call you back and let you leave a message. So feel free to do that if you want to leave an audio comment for us, either something you want us to play on the podcast, or maybe you just want to uh, say a word to us, either in a shout-out or a or decry us. Either way, feel free to do that there. You can either click that Call Me widget, or you can call the number directly. It's 626-24-NO-BOX. That's 626 6269. And the last plug I'll throw at you is our Twitter feed, twitter.com slash BTB podcast. Just a place where you can hook up and get a quick reminder or a quick alert whenever we uh, put a new podcast up. So please feel free to sign up for any of those things. But most of all, we just want to get connected with you. Um, not, and I don't just speak for Steve and I when I say this, but I think our community benefits from the diversity that we've found there from people all over the world who are on a similar journey or, or who maybe are just beginning to explore faith outside the box of institutional religion, who are maybe beginning to explore some theological ideas that are outside the box. Um, we just love the community we have there. We treasure not just your comments, your backpats, not that stuff. We, we appreciate the appreciation. We really do, but even more so, we appreciate the dialogue. I know for me, this really is my community. I consider Beyond the Box um, really my spiritual community. It's where I get most of my uh, fellowship, if you will. It's where I get most of the dialogue that that's going on in my own uh, spiritual walk. So I just appreciate you guys, and thank you so much. And once again, thank you so much, Phyllis Tickle. You are amazing. Really hope we can do this again. And I just hope that you guys will go pick up the book, Emergence Christianity, if you get a chance. And send Phyllis an email. Stop over at phyllistickle.com and just let her know how much you appreciate her. Guys, thank you so much. Have a wonderful week, and we'll talk to you next time on Beyond the Box.